This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This is an example of people not seeing the forest because they're standing right next to a tree, okay? What do we actually care about? Do we care about a mechanism that we could say, well, if A equals B and B equals C and C equals D, then A equals D? Or do we care about just actually measuring D? Because I would say, well, let's just measure D and see what happens. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hey everyone, welcome to Wellness Fact versus Fiction. I'm so excited for today's episode as we have one of the biggest and most loved nutrition pseudoscience mythbusters on the podcast. Our guest today is Lane Norton. If you aren't following Lane on social media, you are missing out. So make sure to check him out and prepare to have your mind blown and also to laugh a bunch because he is absolutely hilarious. Lane is a bodybuilding figure and physique coach who is also a professional powerlifter and bodybuilder. He received his bachelor's in biochemistry from Eckerd College with honors and then went on to finish his PhD in nutritional sciences with honors from the University of Illinois in 2010. He's coached over 2,000 people and developed his own coaching app, Carbon. He spends tons of time on social media, on podcasts, and the press debunking ridiculous nutrition and fitness misinformation. On today's episode, we talk about Lane's fitness and health journey and how he turned his passion for weightlifting into a career, whether artificial sweeteners are actually harmful and make you prone to diabetes and cancer. He explains the research or lack thereof related to sweeteners and obesity and whether they aid or hinder in weight loss. We also chat about the misinformation surrounding your gut microbiome. And he busts myths about metabolism, calories in and calories out, and why you may not be losing weight in a calorie deficit. I know you're excited for this episode, so let's get to it. We are here with Dr. Lane Norton, who is everyone's famous, most favorite, no-nonsense pseudoscience myth buster for all things nutrition science on social media. Hello, Dr. Norton. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Although I, I don't know if I'd agree with uh, everybody. Well, he's, he's everybody's favorite except for um, people who very adamantly hate artificial sweeteners and um, for people who also adamantly uh, hate carbohydrates. But <laughs> we will get to the bottom of that. So yeah, so everyone who, um, even before this episode starts, I want you guys to just make sure you go to Instagram, Twitter, you follow at BioLane. Dr. Norton here, who did his PhD in nutrition science and is a expert in all things bullshit on social media. He really does break it down easily for you. So I'm super excited. And I'm going to commit to this on, on air lane that we are going to make this a two-part episode because um, I have to make sure that we get you on for another because today is going to be 45 minutes. Okay. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you, Lane, and um, a little bit about your training and your expertise, because here on our podcast, we're bringing in the experts to debunk all the misinformation. Thanks for having me. Just to give anybody who's not familiar a kind of a quick and dirty background on me, 
I always describe myself as a meathead who loves science or a science geek who likes lifting heavy things, six of one, half dozen of the other. Um, I got into bodybuilding when I was like, you know, a teenager because uh, I got picked on a lot and didn't get any attention from girls. And I started lifting weights to try and remedy those. And it did not help with either of those two things. But fortunately, I, I fell in love with lifting weights and, um, you know, got really into that. I changed my major in college to biochemistry because I really wanted to like, you know, understand the human body better. And I got into competing while I was in college in bodybuilding and did pretty well there. Started writing for bodybuilding.com just because I love doing it. I was doing, you know, this is back circa 2002, 2003. I was just doing it because I love doing it way before anybody called it content or anything like that. And um, just by the time I was starting to think about what do I want to do with my life, um, you know, I knew I wanted to be involved in the fitness industry, but I didn't really know what to do because, you know, 2003, you're either a personal trainer or you start a supplement company, which takes a lot of funding or you are a bodybuilder, you know, doing a lot of steroids and doing the Olympia and trying to get a supplement sponsor. And I wasn't really interested in any of that stuff. I always competed as a drug-free athlete. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And so I decided to go to grad school purely because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I figured um, I could delay the real world another four to eight years. And, you know, hopefully I wouldn't be in an unemployment line if I had a PhD. That was kind of my, my thinking. And so, you know, did a PhD really uh, focusing on protein metabolism specifically, did a lot of research in leucine, different sources of protein, and as it relates to body composition, did actually a lot of uh, rodent studies, which now I spend a lot of time telling people why we shouldn't put too much emphasis on rodent studies, even though mine ended up uh, quite, uh, most of them being completely validated in humans as well. But that's probably more to do with rats being just a really good model of human protein metabolism compared to some other models. So did that, turned pro in bodybuilding, competed in powerlifting, did well in that, won two national titles, uh, went to world, set a world squat record, blah, 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 blah. And then all that time was also putting out content on social media and started coaching people back in 2005, coached over 2,000 people and then created a nutrition coaching app and a bunch of other stuff, but basically just found a way to make a living in the fitness industry, which was something I love, even though sometimes I hate it. So, you know, what's so interesting is that uh, like, as you're saying all of that, I know, obviously like peripherally on social media, I know that you do bodybuilding and stuff, but it's weird because I, my brain, when I think of you, I actually think of your nerdy side. Like I actually don't even think <laughs> about fitness at all. I think of all of the phenomenal work you do in disseminating fantastic scientific communication on social media and really leveling the field with regards to misinformation and nutrition science. And I always forget that you're like a, a, a like a fitness, you know, meathead person. Cause I think of just, <laughs> I like only think of nerd lane. <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. so, and so for anyone listening, you, you do, you do a fantastic job and you're super, uh, super athlete and um, you do all this like great work in fitness, but I, I really uh, associate you with doing a fantastic job disseminating and also like helping to critically appraise scientific research um, in a way that I think that you would agree with me that is lacking on social media, the nuance and the ability for people 
to differentiate between headlines and actual scientific evidence. And you do a great job breaking that down. So I want to start with them. How did you get into kind of breaking down the misinformation stuff? Because, you know, all of the episodes we've done so far, I did one with Spencer and with Kevin Klatt, and we went through all of Mark Hyman's supplements and all of the nonsense. And then I have Kevin Hall and John Speakman, and we're going to do all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, how did you get into breaking down? Because I know you're in the same field as, you know, all of them. How did you get into breaking down this misinformation? I've always been someone who is okay with questioning things. I think that's a that's a big part of it. I'm a, I'm a very skeptical person by nature. Now, funny enough, not in my personal life. I've, you know, I tend to like just like completely if somebody, you know, the first time I meet them, I'm like, oh, they're really nice. Yeah, um, yeah. But when it comes to other stuff, you know, with science, I'm very, very skeptical. And quite frankly, I think a lot of that was just one, having a really, really good PhD advisor who crushed many of my ideas in a, and not in a bad way, but in just a, you know, made me really think critically about, can you really say that? Can you really say that based on the data? I think that just kind of set me up to, if somebody makes a claim, my first response is, hmm, I wonder if that's, you know, bullshit. <laughs> that's just kind of where my mind goes, for better or worse. And I think, you know, a lot of it started also when I was getting into bodybuilding, you know, back in 2003, there was, people say, oh, it's so bad now. I'm like, well, it's not as bad as it was 20 years ago. Because 20 years ago, there was no evidence-based fitness stuff. It didn't exist. Like, it was just bro science, all of it. Yeah. Um, and so I pick up a magazine and it, you know, you know, one magazine would say this and another magazine would say that don't eat carbs, eat carbs, you know, when should you have your protein and don't eat any protein, you know, whatever. And sometimes even within the same magazine, they contradict themselves. Like yeah. I kind of went like, you know, it just seemed really strange that people would kind of like, you know, plant their flags so strongly when it feels like we just don't have that much stuff figured out. So I think part of it was feeling really um, incredulous almost that like, hey, I've done like really high level research and I would never make a statement as strong as some of these folks are. spoken out pretty loudly about like things like the cancer code, for example, like that book that we both highly disagree with. And I have a niece who went through, um, I've mentioned this on my podcast before, but I have a niece who went through leukemia. She's now in remission, thank God. But, you know, uh, I realized with cancer patients, especially the amount of predatory misinformation that's out there, especially in pediatrics, taking advantage of scared parents. And I know you're, you're passionate about that as well. I have a seething hatred for people who make money off the desperation of other people. If you want to get something that's going to trigger the hell out of me, I don't like misinformation, but I think a lot of misinformation is done with good intentions. Now, that doesn't change the fact that it still harms people. And so I always tell people, we judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge other people by their actions. Yeah. So when I start saying the following phrase, well, my intention was, I start thinking, yeah, but what did I actually do? You know? <laughs> so that being said, when somebody's profiting off that, that really is going to get me riled up. I, my mother has multiple myeloma, which, you know, has, no, as you know, has no cure. Uh, fortunately, she's had some really good oncologists and there's been some great treatments that have come out recently. Yeah. So 
you know, and she followed big pharma evidence-based, you know, medicine. And here she is, you know, seven years after being diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and she's still doing great. Here's the problem. And actually, there's a scene from Breaking Bad. I don't know if you ever watched that show. Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. Um, there's actually a really good scene with the oncologist talking to Walter White. And actually, the, the speech he gives him is right in line with what evidence-based medicine, pro- I mean, you're, you would know better than I would. They're like, well, what about, you know, holistic treatments, these other treatments? And he says, hey, if it makes you feel better and, and you want to do it, that's fine. But, you know, we still need to do the standard of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's great because, you know, if, some, if it makes somebody feel better, if they feel more positive about it, there is evidence that putting somebody in a positive frame of mind actually helps, you know. But the problem is, is that when we offer alternative treatments without also emphasizing the standard of care, People tend to not take the standard of care. And when that happens, they have much higher mortality rates. Oh, yeah. And also when we when we emphasize, you know, alternative treatments that don't even have evidence for them. So example, like keto and cancer. There are certain kind of cancers that are worse with ketosis in animal models and in cell models. There are certain kind of cancers that may be better with ketosis. We do not know how it, nutrition in, in the specific macronutrient ratio affects cancer. And so for people to come out with books claiming otherwise and making money off of it, you know, it's just, it's so unfortunate. And the patients are the ones that are looking for an answer, a solution. And it, it really breaks my heart. Yeah, I wonder how Jason Fung would feel if uh, an oncologist came out with the kidney code. You know what I mean? Like, um, it's yeah. just really interesting how this stuff works. But, you know, I'm friends with uh, Dom DiGostino, who did a lot of that, you know, cancer research. But even he'll say, hey, this was in rats. Hey, there's some anecdote out there. But like, I would never tell somebody don't get the standard of care, you know, this and that. And at the end of the day, all this stuff has to be balanced, right? In terms of, like one of the main killers in a lot of cancer is actually cachexia that people is just end up wasting yeah. uh, to the point where it kills them. And so, you know, okay, keto may be for some cancers fine, but we also have to put that in the higher, what's the hierarchy of what's important? Well, if they don't have an appetite and they can't keep their body weight up and they die because they're cachexic, doesn't matter what it does to the tumor, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely, and 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 then there is research showing that you know certain cancers are fueled by ketones. We cannot even differentiate at this point, like what in humans, like what is best for what. So you know, we don't know. But that being said, I have some myths that we're going to start for you to debunk. One being the most important that is going to get you uh, a bunch of shit on social media because this is so yes. There he is. I think he's drinking something with um, artificial sweetener in it. So our first topic is going to be artificial sweeteners. Lane, please break down. There are so many myths and misinformation about artificial sweeteners, starting with we have the myths. I want you to crush each one. So we have myths that it makes you more prone to diabetes. There's myths that artificial sweeteners cause cancer. There's myths that artificial sweeteners ruin your micro gut microbiome. I mean, all of them are completely inaccurate, but I want you to please just break down all the artificial sweetener myths for everyone listening. So let's start with the body weight stuff um, and insulin and all that stuff, because they all yeah. tie it together. So the, the, the idea, your Mark Hyman viewpoint is, well, it tastes sweet. So that's going to cause you to pump out insulin and store body fat, even if you're not in a calorie source. Okay, so let's just 
take that line by line. First of all, there is some evidence that like, you know, sweet taste that your brain senses that whatnot um, seems to be more so, at least from what I've seen, more so true with solids that are artificially sweetened than it is with liquid. But that being said, let's let's say that's the case. This is an example of people not seeing the forest because they're standing right next to a tree. Okay, so what do we actually care about? Do we care about a mechanism that we could say, well, if A equals B and B equals C and C equals D, then A equals D? Or do we care about just actually measuring D? Because I would say, well, let's just measure D and see what happens. So if we look at the randomized human control trials examining artificial sweeteners and body weight, so there, I'm thinking specifically about a recent uh, study that was done where they looked at, okay, we're either going to give them water or we're going to have them drink two diet sodas a day. Uh, the people drinking the two diet sodas actually lost more body fat. They lost more body fat. Wow. They did not regain as much body weight. Wow. People don't buy the whole wall. It causes you to store fat. Then they say, well, it makes you hungry. Explain this to me. <laughs> How is that possible? So if people are losing more weight, substituting artificially sweetened beverages in place of water. And again, I'm not advocating for people not to drink water and neither is the study. Right. The people still were encouraged to drink water regardless. Either one of two things is true if they're losing more body fat while consuming these artificial sweeteners. Either artificial sweeteners have an unknown potent fat burning effect <laughs> or they're eating less. Right. My guess is they're eating less because right. they have less sweet cravings uh, because this is satisfying some kind of sweet tooth. Fascinating. So, yeah, and this was, this effect was pretty significant. Um, it, was a, it was a couple of kilos, I believe, in difference in body weight. Now, before anyone out there straw man's my argument, I'm not saying you should drink artificial sweeteners. I'm not saying you should use artificial sweeteners. And I'm not saying that there might not be some individuals who have a differential response where maybe even psychologically they drink uh, a diet soda and they actually feel more hungry. Hey, but you're not saying that they shouldn't either. So essentially what this right. trial is showing us that everyone should just do what they want. Correct. Without fear of artificial sweeteners causing weight gain. And even then, so if we look at the randomized human control trials, again, I bring this up because you can pump rats full of a thousand times the dose of a lot of things and show a lot of different things. Absolutely. And then it just doesn't pan out when you go to humans, you know, yeah. shockingly. Um, so when we look at the human data, there is no data demonstrating that people who got artificial sweeteners got fatter. None of it. There's a, the only thing you could find is correlation data showing people who uh, drink higher amounts of uh, uh, artificial sweeteners might be more uh, likely to be obese. That is not the same thing as causation. In the, again, randomized human control trials, exactly. what we see is either people do not gain weight or they lose weight when they start uh, using artificial sweeteners. So again, do what you want, uh, but it seems to be a great tool for people. And every time I post something up, I'll get somebody in the comments saying, I lost 50 pounds and all I did was cut out sugar-sweetened beverages, and drank Diet Coke instead. Now, let's let's also talk about big rocks versus small rocks. Let's say there is some minor effect of artificial sweeteners on your gut microbiome and all these other things. What's more important, getting somebody to lose 50 pounds who is overweight or obese, or worrying about a slight shift in your gut microbiome? 
I would argue that the hazard ratios for being obese on cancer and all-cause mortality, I mean, so uh, this brings up the cancer thing, right? So there was a recent study that got published, which again is a correlation study, a cohort study, a a well-done study. I have no problem with the study itself, uh, showing a 13% increased risk from the people who uh, take in artificial sweeteners. So For cancer? Increased risk for cancer? For, for the for the incidence of cancer, yeah. Okay. But I'm going to get into why I'm, I'm, I'm not really worried about the results Absolutely. of the study. Yeah. Um, okay, that's a 13% relative risk yeah. increase. That's a hazard ratio of 1.13. Mm-hmm. Anybody out there know what the hazard ratios for obesity are? It's like 1.5 to 4. It's like fourfold. So if it's like 13% relative risk increase or 400%, I'd say if it helps you lose weight, you're probably better off with that. So talking about big rocks. Now, that being said, let's address this particular study because it did get a lot of play. And I had a video come out last week about it. But one thing we look for when we're looking at is something causative, when we're looking at correlation data, one of the first things we look for is a dose response. If something is causative, we expect there to be somewhat of a dose response. So when we look at this study, and they looked at across various types of cancer, first off, sucralose was not associated with any kind of cancer. And they, they really glossed over that. Um, aspartame and alsulfame K were the two that were associated. When you look at the non-consumers versus the consumers, yes, the consumers had higher rates, even though they were more likely to smoke less likely to exercise, and a bunch of other confounders. Oh, interesting. Yes. They did attempt to adjust for that in their models. And actually, when they adjusted for it in their models, some of their stuff became non-significant. They Mm. they kind of glossed over that as well. Of course, because if you're adjusting for the fact that someone's a smoker, not exercising, all things that we know affect cancer risk. Well, and here's the other thing. You can't covariate out 30 different confounders. Like, it's just not possible. Totally. Um, And again, which is why I really only get fired up about, you know, association data when it's a very powerful effect and it's a you can see a dose response and it's consistent throughout the literature like fiber is a great example of that right like there is a dose response favorable effects of fiber and it's not like it's just one meta-analysis it's all the meta-analyses so to me it's like okay is it possible once you know the pulse all you know healthy user bias yeah. yeah, I guess it's possible, but it's very unlikely based on the based on how powerful the effect is, how consistent the effect is, and the fact that it's a dose response effect. But when we look at this study in the low consumers of artificial sweeteners versus the high consumers, in not one of them were the high did the high consumers have a greater hazard ratio. In fact, in most of them, they had a slightly lower hazard ratio. And there was a big gap between the low consumers and the high consumers. Like it was a it was a pretty significant gap in how much artificial sweeteners they were consuming. So again, if this is truly a causative agent, why aren't we seeing like like at least even if it's not significant, like as much or higher hazard ratios, which we just didn't see in like pretty much any cancer. So to me, that just says what you're seeing is a data artifact. So right. you know, again, when we look at the randomized human control trials, again, yes, it's difficult to pick up 
you know, differences in like cancer markers in a, in a you know, 12 week or six month or whatever it is. But when we look at any objective health marker, we just don't see a negative effect from artificial sweeteners. Now let's go to the insulin thing. So there was a, a meta-analysis and systematic review in 2018 that basically demonstrated that artificial sweeteners did not affect glycemia at all. Wow. And to date, there is one study that demonstrated that artificial sweeteners increase insulin. <laughs> now, this study, when I read the study, I could not believe it got published, or at least <laughs> not without, I feel like it was biochemists who reviewed it and not nutrition scientists. Let me yeah. put it that way. I think it was published, I want to say it was published in itself. Um, but I could be wrong about that. But they basically had a sucralose-only group, a carbohydrate-only group, and a carbohydrate plus sucralose group. And in the carbohydrate plus sucralose group, they showed a significantly higher insulin response. This is why it is so important to read the methods of Method. a study. Always. So their carbohydrate group in the carbohydrate alone was sucrose. Their carbohydrate source in the carbohydrate plus sucralose group was maltodextrin. Anybody who has a basic understanding of nutritional physiology knows that maltodextrin alone has a much higher glycemic effect Absolutely. and has been shown to increase insulin far more than sucrose alone. Absolutely. You cannot make, the, in fact, I look at the differences in the insulin response and it's about what you would expect if you just compared sucrose to maltodextrin. Oh, the wow. fact that they were able to get this published and wow. nobody stopped and said, wow. um, you know, I had a little bit of a back and forth, like over private message with, with uh, Andrew Huberman about this. And he said, well, what they were really trying to do was match the sweet taste, you know, to see what the response was. And I'm like, that's fine. If that's your primary outcome, that's fine. But then the title of the paper is this. Like, you don't make a title of a paper off a secondary outcome. No. That's not how this stuff works. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, just a really terrible study design if you actually wanted to address the effects of artificial sweeteners on insulin. Okay, preface for gut microbiome. So I used to be so hyped about gut microbiome. I used to be so hyped about all of it until we really realized that we still... There's so much, we don't know anything. There's literally, we do not know what clinical difference, uh, any of these changes in the gut microbiome. We're really truly in the infancy of this research. And while it's important, it's all preliminary. And we do not know what this shift of X, Y, or Z has to do with heart outcomes with regards to actual patients and clinical endpoints, right? That is 100% correct. One of my colleagues from University of Illinois, when I was in uh, Dr. Lehman's lab, she was doing her master's there while I was doing my PhD. Her name was Suzanne Depkota. So she's had papers published in Science and Nature regarding the gut microbiome. So after she graduated with her master's, she went to University of Illinois, Chicago, did her PhD in the gut microbiome, and now is um, at Cedar sinai as a professor there out in California. And I mean, she's been to the Nobel, she's not a Nobel laureate, but she's been to the Nobel, been invited to like the Nobel prizes and whatnot. She has published very impactful stuff. And when I talk to her, basically, she's like, here's what we think we know. More diversity seems to be a good thing, 
fiber seems to be a good thing. Too many calories, not enough exercise seems to be negative. Uh, and possibly saturated fat seems to be negative because of the, the bile salts um, and the end products they form uh, in the gut. Uh, but that's about it. That, that's, that's about it. And like, there's some interesting stuff she showed where like, we think of like cellulose and hemicellulose as being completely undigestible. And they actually found some evidence that there might be like gut microbes that can actually get some energy out of that. That was in mice and she'll be the first to say that. So we actually interviewed her for our podcast. It was so funny because she came in and I said, would you like a drink? She's like, yeah, I'll take a Diet Coke. And I was like, oh, really? And she was like, this is maybe bad if you're a rat and they're giving you a thousand times the normal dose. Um, but she, you know, she's very emphasizing on the, the big blocks, right? The big stone. Right. What are, right. Stop stepping over dollars to pick up penny. Totally. You know, people who are, you know, they're worried about diet soda, but then they don't go exercise. You know, they're worried about diet soda, but then they're eating tons of saturated fat, or, you know, or they're not eating enough fiber. And it's like, you're worried about diet soda, but you're not even doing the stuff that's actually probably helpful for your gut, right? Totally, totally. And it's just indicative of a larger problem of people just want quick hacks to fix everything, you know? Um, so... Ironically, I just thought about this. A lot of the people that are like the in the biohacking community will do a will make a big deal out of like big pharma doesn't want you to get better. You know, they don't talk about health. But here's this biohack supplement that you could take. Always, and it's like how is that any different, you know? Yeah. So if we look at the gut research, until this year, there was three human control trials. None of them had shown an impact on artificial sweeteners on the gut. Until this year, there was one that was published in February. And I think the title was something to the effect of, I'll, I'll butcher this, but basically said, uh, sucralose induces gut uh, dysbiosis in humans and affects insulin sensitivity or something like that. So again, this is where it's important to actually read the methods and the paper. Rather than just looking at the title, ooh, gut dysbiosis. So the title of this paper should have been sucralose seems to not affect most things except for this one strain of gut bacteria. So Which we don't know what clinically meaningful difference that will make in correct. humans. We know you can shift the gut microbiome. We don't know if it's a positive or negative shift. So actually, funny enough, the species of gut microbiota that were elevated, that they actually showed were elevated. I went and looked it up. You know, that's actually associated with positive health outcomes. <laughs> the people with obesity and type 2 diabetes have less of this sort of gut microbiota. So, like, how, how does that work? Like, it just goes to just, show we're, we're just truly in the infancy of this research. And it's just, although it's important, and I highly encourage people who are doing research that are interested in it to continue to pursue it, but we really are in the infancy. And when we put mechanisms over outcomes, then that is where we live in this area where we're making decisions based on just like hypotheses and not actual, you know, robust data. Now, what's funny is if these biohackers had a supplement that raised this microbiota that sucralose raised, They'd be saying, look at this, the answer to type 2 diabetes and obesity, you know, because people with obesity and type 2 diabetes don't have a high level of this. And it's shown to be anti-inflammatory and all these sorts of things. But since sucralose raised it, well, it's, you know, insulin resistance and gut dysbiosis, you know. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, so I, I'm definitely not ready to say based on that. So gut dysbiosis, allow me to translate because that sounds scary. It basically means there was a shift in the gut microbiota. It could have been positive. It could have been negative. We don't know. We don't so based on this one study, am I ready to go tell people to stop consuming artificial sweeteners? Definitely not. Definitely not. Then as far as the insulin stuff goes, so what it really should have said, again, is sucralose largely uh, does not affect insulin except for this one thing. So uh, basically, they measured uh, blood glucose. They measured blood glucose area under the curve after an oral glucose tolerance test. They measured HbA1c. They measured uh, HOMA-IR. They measured fasting insulin. They measured fasting blood glucose. Every single one of them had no difference between the two groups except for a single time point in the oral glucose tolerance test at 90 minutes. That was it. That was the only one that has That's statistical ridiculous. <laughs> But the area under the curve was not different. So it's like, you know, you can sexy up these titles all you want. But to me, that basically says, all right, was that really a real difference? Or is that, again, just a data artifact? Yeah. Because HOMA IR wasn't different. HbA1c wasn't different. Fasting insulin, fasting blood glucose weren't different. Um, you know, yeah. So the, the big rocks that we worry about, you know, the, these these actual you know, measurements, they weren't different. So here's how they worded it. You know, my advisor used to say, if you torture the data enough, it will confess to what you want it to confess to. They made a big deal about the area under the curve. So the area under the curve, when you're comparing the statistics of the two groups was not different. However, when you compare the non-sucralose group at baseline to, I think it was 12 weeks, uh, there was no significant differences in uh, insulin AUG. But if you compare the sucralose group to baseline, there was a slight increase statistically. There's still no significant differences between the two. That's actually the story, right? But again, if you like convolutedly torture the data enough, you can like sh- make it show whatever you want. So again, this one time point basically is driving all this stuff. And again, the gut dysbiosis is a species of bacteria that we seem to think is anti-inflammatory and actually may have some beneficial effects. So based off this one paper, I am certainly not ready to say that artificial sweeteners are a problem for the gut. So so general fact versus fiction on artificial sweeteners. Artificial sweeteners are bad for you from Mark Hyman. Would you say fact versus fiction? I would generally say that if you said the opposite of anything Mark Hyman said, yes. you'd probably be more in line with evidence-based stuff. Um, you can tell he's lying if his mouth is moving. Exactly. Uh, or I shouldn't say lying because he may actually believe this stuff. No. You can tell he's full of shit if his mouth is moving. Typically. So true. So true. What I would say is that artificial sweeteners do not appear to pose a significant health concern for humans. You don't have to drink. You don't have you don't to have drink, to drink them. them. But you can if you want without fear. Yeah, if you if if it helps you not drink sugar sweetened beverages, if it helps you with a sweet craving, it seems to be a reasonable thing to do. If for whatever reason it makes you feel more hungry or you don't like them or, or whatever else, then simply don't don't use them. Yep, totally perfect. Okay, well I only have ten minutes left with you because I know you have to go. We're definitely going to do a second part of the episode, so I want to do. Just now for the last 10 minutes I have you, 
I want you to prime us for the next episode because I want you to break down for everyone the idea of calories in versus calories out when it comes to weight loss and just kind of explain to everyone, you know, there's all these macronutrient wars. And I know that you know, and I both, we both know that uh, you can lose weight eating a high carb diet. You can lose weight eating a low carb diet. You can lose weight eating a Twinkie diet. You can literally lose weight um, in many other ways. So I'd love for you to prime everyone just on basics of, of calories and weight loss, because our next episode, we're going to just talk about all of the drama with low carb versus high carb. I think a lot of people are really confused about what calories in versus calories out are. Um, they think calories in is, well, I looked at the food label and this is what it says. And then I think calories out is, well, my Apple watch said I burned this many calories per day. Um, so calories are simply a measurement of the energy content of the energy in the chemical bonds of food. The process of digestion, absorption, and metabolism is what transfers that energy in those bonds into basically form the end product of adenosine triphosphate or ATP, which is our body's energy currency. Now, ATP is a high energy phosphate. If we have excess energy, we can't just store a bunch of ATP. It's a highly reactive short-term molecule. So therefore, how do we store it? Well, we store it typically as body fat for the most part. Um, there, there are some other storage forms of energy, but they're on the long term, it's mostly body. Now, some people are very confused because they'll say, why well, the calorie deficit and I didn't lose weight? You ate in what you thought was a calorie deficit and you didn't lose weight. You ate in what maybe should have been a calorie deficit and you didn't lose weight. Or you just weighed yourself very haphazardly and you just caught yourself on a high fluctuation. So what I'll tell people is if you are not losing weight, on average, over a period of weeks, you are not in a calorie deficit. It's just that simple. If you eat carbons from food, those carbons have to go somewhere. They don't just flitter off into oblivion. Also, you cannot create carbons out of nothing. That's not how that works. So that is the, what's called the law of energy conservation. Right? Matter cannot be created or destroyed. It must be transferred. And if you are getting rid of it, then we can measure it. Yes, we can find out where all this stuff is going, whether you're either going to be losing it in your urine or you're going to be losing it in your feces or you're going to be um, like losing it through thermogenesis, all of which can be measured, by the way. So guess what happens when they put people in metabolic chambers and feed them what is calculated to be a calorie deficit? Without fail, they lose weight. I think that part of it too is that um, I I've recorded an episode with Herman Ponzer and we're talking about, you know, that people's basal metabolic rate may be lower than what they think it is as well, you know, because of, we know from Kevin Hall's research where, you know, when, when they lose weight, that their basal metabolic rate goes down. And then even if they regain weight, it may actually still be really kind of uh, lower than, than predicted. And, and then also I think in general, we do a pretty bad job of, of estimating how many calories we're eating a day. Oh, for sure. So that's, that would be the next the next part of it. But you, you touched on metabolic adaptation, which has been a big passion project of mine. Yeah. So there's a lot of debate in this arena. So I'll, I'll stay away from strong statements. But in general, people who are overweight or obese do not have a lower metabolic rate than those who are 
comparatively lean with the same lean body mass. They, they tend to have about the same, if not a little bit higher metabolic rate. But people who lose weight, so if, they're, if you compare two people, let's assume genetically identical, and I think they've done this in twin studies. One has never been obese. One is formally obese, but weight reduced down to the same body weight as the twin. The person who's weight reduced will actually have typically a lower basal metabolic rate than the person who is not weight reduced. So in that aspect, yes, it does appear that there is something kind of, and we do think that this may explain kind of why diets are so hard to have success with in the long term, is that not only do you get more hungry and you know that's trying to drive you to eat more and drive you back towards your original body weight, but also your basal metabolic rate is uh, slowing down. So trying to drive you, you know, again, back towards energy balance. So people also get confused with calories in, calories out. So say, well, I ate the calorie deficit. I didn't lose weight. Well, you ate in what was probably at one point a calorie deficit for you, right? So if you were consuming 3,000 calories, I actually did this calculation. I'm writing some coursework right now. So we know that meat, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis can be modifiable by like four or 500 calories per day. We know that BMR is modifiable by at least on average about 15% in weight-reduced individuals. And we know that um, actually as you diet, people who are weight-reduced actually have better economy of exercise. And if you calculate all those up, I basically did the calculation on the conservative side for somebody who starts out and they're total daily energy expenditure was 2,700 and they started dieting at 1,900 calories, they would lose body weight until they got about 10% weight reduced, at which point it'd be very, very possible that they would have a reduction in their total daily energy expenditure of 800 calories per day from BMR, from meat, and from exercise economy. So again, like this is all, it's a good thing for survival. Your body's becoming more economical. But it confuses people because they say, well, 1,900 calories, that should be a calorie deficit. Well, it was at one point, but not anymore, right? right? So, and, and this is one of the big struggles, especially like I saw this a lot because with athletes, you know, who are uh, physique athletes, obviously we have to get them to very, very low levels of body fat. And the amount of like metabolic adaptation I would see, you know, we would have people who like by the end, I mean, they were barely losing weight on 1,200, 1,300 calories per day even doing exercise, which would seem like almost impossible. But when you're just that low, I mean, it's literally try, trying to, you know, if you've ever had a roll of toothpicks, the best way I can describe losing body fat is you have a lot of it, it's relatively easy to lose if you do behavior modification. So it's like when you first get a fresh roll of toothpaste, you squeeze it in the toothpaste and you know, a bunch, bunch comes out. So to get the same amount of toothpaste as you would with one squeeze when it's full, compared to when it's almost done, I mean, it takes infinitesimally more work, right? Like, yeah, squeeze really hard. That's kind of what body fat is like. Like, by the end, you know, of physique competition, most people are losing quite a bit of lean body mass just to lose, like, a few more ounces of body fat. So it's just really interesting how all this stuff works. And I, you're, you're absolutely right that it confuses people when it comes to calories in, calories out, because they think of them as independent variables. But your calories in changes your calories out. Yep. Not only is that true in dropping weight, it's also true in gaining weight. Yeah. So they show from overfeeding that some people tend to be more obese resistant, probably mostly through meat. They just become spontaneously more active mm -hmm. than others. And the other thing that really confuses people is, as you pointed out, people are just horrible estimators of their energy intake, like terrible. 
And I mean, there's research out there showing that it's anywhere from 30 to 70% underestimating their calories in. Even when registered dietitians, there was even a study where they had registered dietitians measure their own calorie intake and they underestimate. The next episode we do, I'm going to have you demystify and break down for everyone why bananas will not give you diabetes and why carbohydrates (laughs) are not the enemy because the amount of misinformation on social media about macronutrients and everything like that i know that you are passionate about it and actually when i did my presentation for the american society preventive cardiology this summer i had a presentation and i had to do a debate on um, low carb versus high carb and um I'm very neutral when it comes to carb, um, macronutrient ratios. I think you can do whatever diet you enjoy um, as long as it's a cardiovascularly beneficial one. But uh, Lane actually provided me with a bunch of fantastic systematic reviews and meta-analysis on low-carb diets and diabetes. And so he was actually a great resource for me on this. So we're going to get into this topic and we are going to let you guys eat bananas and uh, and, and pretzels a, a little uh, um, worry-free. <laughs> and diet exactly. All right. Thanks, Lane. So next time we'll go into macronutrients and I thank you so much and tell everyone where they can find you again in the meantime. Uh, Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So you find all things me at biolane.com. That's my website. Uh, We have a nutrition coaching app called Carbon Diet Coach. We have an evidence-based supplement line. We do very responsible marketing for you. You can check out my There's no BS. Everyone knows here that I hate supplements and there's no BS with uh, Lane. I straight up say you you don't need this. It might help a little bit if you like X, right? Yes. Um, so that's called Outwork Nutrition. And then uh, we also have, like, if you're looking for evidence-based uh, programming for training, we have something called the BioLane Workout Builder on our site. And I'm actually going to have a research review coming out soon for our site as well. And we have a nutrition coaching app called Carbon Diet Coach, where we have balanced, low-carb, low-fat, plant-based, Anything uh, ketogenic like. options. I am diet agnostic. Yes, he truly is. Truly is diagnostic. That's the truth. And you can find him on social media at BioLane, Instagram, Twitter. You got to follow him and look at his clapbacks because they will make you laugh for days. So thank you, Lane. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like debunked next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.